Welcome to episode 75 of Let's Talk Social Work. I'm Andy McClanahan, and today I'll be discussing adult safeguarding, the policies, procedures and practices aimed at protecting adults who may be at risk of abuse, neglect or exploitation. This is work guided by principles of dignity, respect and empowerment, and social workers play a crucial role in identifying, assessing and responding to concerns about the safety and well-being of adults who may be experiencing harm or who are at risk of harm. I'm really pleased to be joined by Dr. Jeremy Dixon, Senior Lecturer in the Department of Social and Policy Sciences at the University of Bath. We'll be exploring the findings of Jeremy's research, which examined understandings of and approaches to adult safeguarding, as detailed in his recent book, Adult Safeguarding Observed. The book is available now, published by Policy Press. Jeremy, welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, thank you very much for inviting me. Oh, it's a pleasure. And... Listeners, I introduced Jeremy as a senior lecturer in the in the Department of Social and Policy Sciences at the University of Bath, which you currently are, Jeremy, but I believe not for much longer. That's right. Um, I've been here since 2012, in actual fact, but I'm just about to leave. I, I leave the post at the end of March, and I'm going to a new post as a reader of social work at the new Centre for Adult Social Care Research at Cardiff University, which I'm really looking forward to. That's brilliant. Congratulations. And when I when I posed that cliffhanger, not for much longer, I, I should have said, for good reasons, it's not that you're, <laughs> being, it's not that you're being required to move. Um, yeah, that's big congratulations. Now, Jeremy, we're going to talk about your book, Adult Safeguarding Observed. Um, but before we get into the details of your research, I want to talk a bit about your background. Um, your background when you were in practice was in mental health social work. Um, was that what motivated you to uh, focus on adult safeguarding in, in the new book? Not really, no. I mean, most of my time, as you mentioned, had been in mental health social work. So I'd worked in mental health teams, I'd worked in forensic mental health. But when I'd come on to do research uh, towards the end of my sort of time in practice, I'd initially worked with offenders with mental health problems and I'd started to study the topic of risk, uh, particularly about people's views of their risk assessment. And it got me into uh, this whole literature in sociology about the sociology of risk and uncertainty. So I'd kept an interest in that over the years. And when the Care Act 2014 came into being, it gave me an opportunity to think about how social workers were using risk in practice, because it focuses specifically on uh, responses to adults at risk of abuse and neglect. So that's why I zoned in on this particular area. It was uh, because of my interest in, in risk and uncertainty, really. Yes. And we're going to talk a lot about risk and we're going to talk a lot about the Care Act. Those are feature very prominently in your book. But before we move on any further, what questions were you seeking to answer in your research? Yeah, thanks for asking that. So there was a number of different things I was looking at. So I was interested in thinking about how social workers interpreted safeguard duties as laid out by the Care Act 2014. Um, I was also aware that people don't just sort of apply law in a straightforward way. So I was also wanting to think about what sources of information social workers draw on when assessing and managing risks. And I also wanted to think about how agency policies, procedures and cultures influence the way in which social workers manage risk and uncertainty. And lastly, a lot of the policies in adult safeguarding focus on the need to make the service user central to risk decision making. So I wanted to know a bit more about 
whether that happened in practice and to what extent the views of service users themselves were considered within assessments. Thanks. And we're going to get on to a lot of that in a few minutes. But you mentioned near the start of the book that when you were training as a social worker in the late 1990s, nobody used the term adult safeguarding. In considering when adult safeguarding became a policy issue, you provide a detailed history of key incidents going back to the 1960s. So quite a long period of history here. So we're going to keep this as brief as possible. But in your view, what were the key moments in the development of understanding adult abuse and the safeguarding responses provided? Is it possible to provide a sort of summary? Yeah, I can do that. Yeah. Uh, it was really interesting to me to look back and, and find out what the key moments were. And I could have gone back a lot further, but I started in the 1960s because I was um, interested in responses after the National Health Service came into being. So the, the things I focused on specifically were uh, campaigns by a um, social campaigner known as Barbara Robb, who was somebody who was uh, concerned to try and challenge abuse and neglect on dementia wards in the NHS in the 1960s. And she um, ran quite a high profile campaign, which got a lot of press attention in the, the 60s. Uh, but after that period, things went a bit dead. So there were some concerns which were raised, uh, mainly by psychiatrists in medical journals. And a couple of articles were written about what was termed as granny battering at the time. And these authors were picking up on uh, debates about baby battering, which were going on in the press. And we're trying to sort of piggyback on that, if you like. And that's obviously language we're not using in 2024. It's, it's pretty, no, no, it's not at all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, things have obviously moved on since that point. And um, I think it's interesting because the social work literature um, started to talk about these issues. And there was a number of articles and things like community care, and initially, they did use that language of uh, granny battering or granny bashing, uh, but uh, started to move on from that. So there was a recognition by um, authors that, uh, first of all, it wasn't just related to females and um, that we should be using other terms. So the term old age abuse started to be used uh, in the uh, 80s and 90s. And um, there was a few things that sort of started to move things forward, I think. So the Law Commission was starting to look at uh, reform to mental capacity laws and to adult care laws. And while they were doing that, they started to recognise that adult abuse and neglect was something which needed to be tackled. And uh, social workers themselves were campaigning. So people like the Association of Directors of Adult Social Services. And there was also groups um, of activists, which were made up of people like families or charities, uh, picking up on the fact that uh, people with learning disabilities who've been discharged from long-term institutions, uh, as well as older adults, could be abused and neglected. Um, so gradually, these things started to come to attention. So the, the comic relief campaign was one of the things that uh, flagged this up and, and put it into the uh, public orbit, if you like. What sort of time and, was that? What, what, what uh, was that? Good question. I think that was around um, the 1990s when the comic relief uh, campaign took place. And uh, it was in 2000 that the Department of Health introduced uh, the policy No Secrets, which first set out national guidance for managing abuse and neglect in England, although it didn't have uh, the status of law. So that didn't really happen until 2014. And along that 
period of time, you have uh, several groups, as I mentioned, starting to campaign against uh, abuse and neglect. And there's also a number of inquiries which started to push the uh, issue up the agenda. So I live fairly close to uh, Winterbourne, uh, where the Winterbourne View Hospital uh, had uh, was, and there was a high-profile um, panorama documentary about abuse and neglect of people with learning disabilities who were in that private hospital. So that was, you know, just one of uh, the examples of uh, high-profile cases which were coming forward, but there, there were a number of others as well. Yeah, that was 2011, I think, Panorama's investigation? Yeah. Or at least it was, yeah. it was Aaron, yeah, 2011. Yes, there were several uh, campaigns, uh, including the Panorama one. Uh, so that was just one of them. There were was, was several others as well. Uh, but these things uh, started to snowball, if you like, so that... Uh, the issue of adult abuse and neglect started to come to public attention and be talked about a lot more. And so gradually these things started to come into public consciousness. And how how significant was greater public awareness of um, adult abuse um, in, in, in terms of the government then actually delivering the, the CARE Act, which uh, was in 2014? It's difficult to say exactly. I think uh, some of these things have been motivated by the Law Commissioner uh, review, which had happened beforehand. Um, and th- there was uh, a number of occasions where public um, concern was raised, but my sense when I was writing the book was that the government sort of put into place a lot of measures which it was already considering doing anyway. Um, so sometimes when you look at policy documents, they have to respond to a... Um, a, an event, but but sometimes the, the solutions are things which have already been mooted and, and planned for already, and I felt that yes. was the case uh, with adult safeguarding. But it's fair to say that the Care Act was a it marked a watershed uh, in placing adult safeguarding on a statutory footing in England. Would that be would that be fair enough? It did, yeah. It it was significant yeah. in making safeguarding a statutory duty for the first time, and that was something which the social work profession had been pushing for. Uh, they'd been flagging up since 2000 problems uh, with it just having the status of guidance. Um, there was uh, research at the time which showed that there was differences in the way in which different local authorities were applying it. And uh, there was also some interesting research which showed that um, you know agencies tended to interpret those duties quite differently and often got their own sort of self-interest first when they were interpreting the guidance of the time. And um, although local authorities had the lead duty, nobody else had a statutory duty to do safeguarding. So other agencies didn't always engage in it in the way that local authorities would have wished them to. So if we look specifically at the statutory duties that are placed on local authorities by the CARE Act, talk me through those. Okay, so under the CARE Act, local authorities... Uh, have a duty to set up a safeguarding adults board, of which they're the lead agency. Local authorities also have duties under Section 42 of the Act, which is really the key part of it. So this section applies where a local authority has reasonable cause to suspect that an adult in its area, whether or not their ordinary resident there, has needs for care and support, is experiencing or at risk of abuse and neglect, and as a result of those needs is unable to protect himself or herself against the abuse or neglect 
or the risk of it. So where that happens, a local authority must make or cause to be made uh, whatever inquiries it thinks are necessary uh, to enable it to decide what action should be taken. So sometimes it devolves uh, its inquiries to um, other groups. So it might uh, ask a care home to conduct some inquiries and report back to it, for example. Uh, and the last thing to, to note is that um, where things go wrong, local authorities have duties to conduct safeguarding adults' reviews, uh, you know, where deaths occur or where there's particular failings. So that's also included within the, the Care Act powers. Okay, and there's six safeguarding principles contained in the Care Act, is that right? There are, yes. And these yeah. don't fall within the Care Act itself. They're within the care and support statutory guidance, but they're there to uh, try and give social workers a steer about how they should conduct adult safeguarding. So the principles which are set out there are empowerment, prevention, proportionality, protection, partnership, and accountability. Okay. So yeah, just to be clear, if you go looking for those principles in the Act, it's not there. That is in the statutory guidance. That's right. Yeah. And similarly, uh, similarly in the statutory guidance, it also sets out different types of abuse and neglect. Um, so it, it gives categories such as physical uh, abuse, sexual abuse, financial or material, discriminatory abuse, domestic, psychological, modern slavery, and organisational abuse. So that list isn't uh, intended to be uh, um, all encompassing, you know, there might be other types of abuse and neglect which come up, which social workers may respond to under the Care Act. Now, the Care Act, it applies in England only. That's right. The situation in Scot Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. Do you have any, uh, do you know how the statutory powers in, in those nations compares to the situation in England? Yeah, I'm not an expert, so I won't go into lots of detail here but there are differences uh, particularly in relation to powers of entry so in england and northern ireland uh, essentially they have the least powers so there's no powers of entry allowing practitioners to speak to a person or powers to remove an adult at risk uh, there's no powers to ban the subject of an order from a certain place uh, wales has a power of entry but no power of removal and scotland has the most powers uh, as it has powers of entry and powers of, of removal of a named person from a particular place. And in England, when these things were being considered, um, powers of entry were considered and consultations did take place with practitioners. But in the end event, the government didn't introduce it because although the powers were quite popular with practitioners, um, when they did public polling, they weren't very popular with the public. Okay. Do you have a, an opinion on that that you'd be willing to offer? Yeah, I think it's an interesting area, actually. Uh, so when I've run seminars and we've talked to social workers about it, social workers are quite split about whether it's a good thing or not. Uh, some people think it would be good on the basis that um, it gives you real powers to, to go in and do something about a situation, but other people um, are quite against it on the basis that um, it would be against the the idea of sort of building partnerships with people. I think it probably would have been a, a good idea to have introduced the power of entry because currently um, you don't have that at the moment. So you're uh, reliant on people cooperating with you and sort of trying to talk your way in. Uh, and it would be interesting longer term to do research looking at, you know, how that plays out or um, how people managed those 
issues. Uh, you know, there's quite a lot of good research in child protection done by people like Harry Ferguson looking about how social workers negotiate those things in child protection, but we don't really know yet how it happens in adult protection or adult safeguarding. I wasn't planning to ask this, so you don't have to answer, but it, it, what just comes to mind there is Article 8 of the uh, European Convention on Human Rights, um, right to respect for your private and family life. There would be considerations in relation to that, wouldn't there, in terms of a right to entry? Yeah, there would be considerations. So you, you would have to um, show that you were considering it. But um, having, well, I can give a, I suppose, an example from the Mental Health Act. So the Mental Health Act does allow um people to apply for a warrant to enter a property in um particular circumstances so as a approved mental health professional who might be doing mental health assessments you would still have to consider uh you know the rights that you just mentioned right to uh, private and family life um but you'd, you'd have to take you know show you're taking that into the balance um and um, show why it was necessary to use those powers so typically if you would uh, to go and see a magistrate and ask for a um, a warrant, they would ask you, you know, how you were balancing those things up, but it wouldn't necessarily prevent you altogether from doing those things. You would just have to show that you were doing so proportionately. Thank you. That's really helpful, Jeremy. Um, now, the CARE Act, when it was introduced, uh, it wasn't without its critics. Can you tell me why some people believe the, the CARE Act actually falls short? Yeah, um, I think it's fair to say that Largely, the Care Act was uh, welcomed. So, uh, the you know social work organisations were were quite positive about it. But there was a few uh, minor criticisms. So, uh, the Chief Executive of Action on Elder Abuse in an article in Community Care, for example, made some criticisms about Section Forty Two of the Act, which I mentioned before, being ambiguous um, and not really giving social workers very much direction. Um, it's also been said that the definition of self-neglect given in the guidance is poor. And uh, th there's problems related to the Act in, in terms of um, its success in some ways. So uh, because people have started to respect the fact that safeguarding is a statutory duty, we've seen a very sharp rise in safeguarding adults um, concerns being raised with local authorities. So that brings its own problems in a way. But I think largely speaking, it it, it has been seen as a success by um, social work commentators. Um, for me, I think the thing that always surprises me when I look at it is that the parts of the Act that are given over to the safeguarding are quite brief, really. So there's not enormous amounts um, which are contained within the Act itself. Most of it's sort of in the, the guidance. Now, just staying with that issue around the Section 42 of the CARE Act, in your research, you mentioned that one of your research participants, and we'll, we'll explain how you conducted your research shortly, but one of the participants noted they considered Section 42 of the CARE Act, and this is the direct quote, as a bit woolly, a bit woolly, sorry, um, my very flat Northern Irish voice has <laughs> kind of made that hard to understand. So so that, that, that concern, I believe that was essentially what you were saying, the, the, um, the individual who was the chief executive of the, that NGO you cited, that was similarly their concerns? That it's, it doesn't, it's not precise enough, is that correct? Yeah, no, it's not very precise, I don't think. So I think the, their concern was it, it doesn't really um, tell you very much in the law itself about what abuse and neglect is. Um, so it's, it's given a bit more meat, if you like, 
through the carer support statutory guidance, but the the act itself, um, you know, doesn't give a, a very sharp definition. Uh, that's that's a criticism that has been made. Okay, but when we're talking about adult safeguarding as well. The Care Act isn't the only piece of legislation that that's got to be considered. The Mental Capacity Act, two thousand and five, that also has a significant role to play here. Can you tell me briefly about uh, the Mental Capacity Act in relation to adult safeguarding? I can. So, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners will know, the Mental Capacity Act was implemented in two thousand and seven. So, in the history chapter of my book, I identify that it was relevant in in three respects, really. First, it established that a person should not be treated as unable to make a decision merely because they make an unwise decision. So where a person was seen to lack capacity, uh, professionals were instructed to act in their best interest. So from an abuse perspective, this means that neglect should be addressed. Uh, Secondly, the Act established the Office of the Public Guardian. So this promoted uh, the use of lasting powers of attorney and enduring powers of attorney which encouraged individuals to say who they wanted to, to act on their behalf in the future. And the thinking behind that was that it might lessen the de- degree of financial abuse, uh, which had been occurring at the time. And thirdly, uh, the Mental Capacity Act uh, made the ill treatment or willful neglect of a person who lacked capacity an offence. So that, again, was a power designed to prevent abuse. So. I think maybe the first two of those things are things that social workers tended to talk about in my research. Uh, the third, maybe less so. But the thing that tends to come up a lot in conversation with social workers is this bit about um, people should not be treated as unable to make a decision merely because they make an unwise decision. And I'm being very careful about my language there because I've been told off in the past of by uh, another trainer about saying uh, the right to make an unwise decision, which they they see as uh, being incorrect. So um, we can maybe come on to that a bit later. Well, then explain that now. I'm curious. What do you mean in, in terms of... So I think what, uh, previously when I've been uh, talking about this issue in lectures, I mean, I've probably adopted this shorthand that social workers use, which is quite often that people have the right to make an unwise decision. So um, the trainer who I was talking to was saying, well, that's maybe an incorrect way to look at it uh, because it assumes that um, you should just sort of step back from all things like self-neglect uh, and, and shouldn't really take action. So th- they were saying it uh, would be more accurate to say that uh, the person's unable to make a decision merely because they make an unwise decision. So I'm just quoting almost exactly from the law there. Um, but I'm not so sure, really. I mean, it's something I'd like to look into, you know, within a further article, really, and to examine the case law around this in, in a bit more detail. Um, I, You know, I'm still undecided about whether that person's got a good point or whether they're just splitting hairs. Um, but I think you know, largely speaking, when you talk to social workers, they do use this phrase, the right to take, you know, the right to make unwise decisions. So, you know, whether or not that's the correct way to look at it, I think that's the way it tends to be interpreted. Okay. It's good though that they're inspiring you to continue your, your academic endeavours. You know, this is a, you know, the next book perhaps, Jeremy. Yeah. Uh, you, you said an article. Well, it's an article, stretch it out to a book. You can come back and we'll talk about it again. Um, now, Focusing in on your research, uh, Adult Safeguarding Observed, um, we've talked about what you were trying to find out, but uh, we want to talk about your methodology. 
uh, I'm dead interested in methodology. I have a research mm. background myself, but not everybody is. So we'll keep it fairly brief. Um, how did you conduct your research? Yeah. Okay. So I used a method which is known as ethnography. So ethnography is really a, uh, a qualitative research method, um, which is concerned with observing people in their sort of natural setting, you know, drawing from anthropology uh, and, and seeing what they do, to put it in very simple terms. So what I did in, in this research was I initially approached people who were conducting um, adult safeguarding inquiries, so usually sort of senior practitioners, and I asked for permission from the three local authorities to observe them in action. So uh, I uh, followed them for you know half a day to a day, uh, watched what they were doing, took quite detailed notes. When I spoke to social workers in teams, I uh, discussed with them what would be the best way to go about this. So the first team suggested that maybe the best way is just to sit next to the person and uh, be looking at what they were doing on their computer. And um, that's, that's what I did. And in some cases, they set up a you know separate computer so I could actually uh, see uh, their screen in more detail. And in other cases, I, I just looked over the shoulder. But I was um, sometimes sort of making notes. And then at the end of the day, I'd interview them about um, a particular case that they dealt with that day. So I gave them the choice of which case they wanted to look at. And in a way, I wasn't too worried about which case it was. It it just stopped the interview from being too formularic. So um, if you ask people a lot of uh, abstract questions, uh, then people can get a bit nervous and dry up. So uh, giving them a case to work around was a, a means of trying to get people to um, flow a bit more, really, and get excited about the, the work that they were talking about. But one thing I should just also mention was that um, – I also intended to sort of observe people doing work in the home, but that didn't really work out because um, in the local authorities I was uh, working within, most of those social workers were just going out on spec, so it wasn't really easy to plan for. So with um, some of the social workers, I just interviewed them about how they did longer-term adult safeguarding work rather than actually observing them doing it um, in the community. And something I'm interested in, we're having this, this is a fairly natural conversation, but it's not entirely uncontrived. You know, we set up a date to make, have this conversation. We're both wearing headphones, Jeremy. This is not quite normal. I'm drawing a parallel to your research. Mm. When you're sitting and shadowing a social worker in the office, how do you, how do you keep things natural? How do you ensure there's not a sort of performative element? Because I'm guessing if someone's sitting beside you recording with a notepad what you're doing, you're probably going to be maybe a wee bit tense or, uh, you know, you want them to be natural and do the work exactly as they would be doing it were you not there. How do you, how do you mitigate it against any sort of performative element uh, from the research participants? Yeah, I think that's a fair question. And I think you're right that, you know, people are obviously aware you're there and uh, they, you know, obviously want to uh, put the the best presentation of themselves forward. Um, what you notice, though, I think, is that when you're doing that kind of observation work, although people might sometimes be nervous about it, they do relax after a period of time and settle into their more normal routines. And sometimes when you talk to people at the end of the process, they say, oh, I was really nervous about that, but I quite enjoyed it, some people said. Um, 
and, and people differ quite a lot actually in the, in the way in which they come across. So, you know, some people, as you mentioned, are quite nervous and uh, can almost be a bit defensive in interviews. So sometimes when you interview people about safeguarding, they'll be a bit like, oh, well, I was just following the law and, and, and be, you know, not really want to give much away. And other people can be, you know, quite different and relaxed and will be saying, oh, it's quite funny how we say things like self-neglect is, you know, I went out on a visit the other day and I didn't really know what I was doing. So I just made something up and, you know, they're, they're you know, quite open to uh, gaps in their knowledge or things they didn't get right and, and what have you. And the last thing to say really is that I guess that people interpret you as a researcher quite differently sometimes. So um, I said in the book, uh, one person who I observed, you know, said that they were very nervous in the lift on the way up to the office because I was somebody very clever. So, you know, you just have to try and um take take your compliments where you get them, <laughs> I would say. Yeah. You have to reassure people, I think, that um, you know, you're you know, you're not there to test them, you're just there to observe them. And it's it's really, you know, you're not looking for a right answer. You're trying to sort of see what actually goes on. Yes. And you gave, so three local authorities, you had to anonymise those? What what were the names? Uh, well, I gave them the pseudonyms of Fosborough, Gansborough and Armsbury. Um, okay. So, you know, one of those was... Ar- a- Armsbury makes we think of the archers, <laughs> isn't it? Um, um, what is it called? Am- Ambridge? Yeah, Ambridge, Ambridge is the that's archers, right, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah, okay. Yes. And that was important to, to keep uh, everything sort of confidential and... Uh, yeah, um, I think when you uh, start out and try to get access to local authorities, um, it, well, in one local authority at least, the management were quite nervous about giving me access. So um, it's quite important to them that you're going to disguise a local authority and it's important yeah. to workers that you're not going to um, make them recognisable to other people. So you, you have to be careful to take out distinguishing details and, and what have you. Now, when you were... Speaking earlier, you talked about the importance of risk and there's a significant proportion, I think it's a whole chapter in the book, given over to talking about theories of yeah. risk and risk in social work. Um, can you tell me uh, the extent to which um, theories of risk uh, have influenced social policy and social work practice over the years and, and why it's such an important area to examine from your perspective? Um, well, I'll start by talking about how it's influenced social work theory. Does that is that okay to start off with? Oh yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. So, uh, and then I'll I'll try and answer the policy bit. So, in terms of theory, I think people have drawn from some of the sociologists who've written about this topic. So, um, I probably won't go this in great detail in this interview, but there's three key sociologists who are seen as being important uh, in the field. Uh, so, the first is Ulrich Beck. Um, who I know from our previous discussions, uh, you, you know about and, and whose work you've read. Um, yeah, I felt very clever when I recognised Ulrich Beck. It takes me right <laughs> back to, I think it was social and political theory. It was a second year module when I studied politics. I didn't try very hard at it, Jeremy. It's a, it's a bit of a regret. Youth is wasted on the young, as they say. Yeah. I would love to go back, but I can't. Sorry. I know, I feel Continue. that way about my, my English language degree. Um, yes. So I think, uh, yeah, the second person is, is Michel Foucault. Um, uh, oh, I know. Uh, yeah, for, so tech, tech. There you go. I've got two. Yeah, and the third one, Mary Douglas. So, nah, sixty-six percent. Okay, that's all right. That's basically what I did in my degree. Yeah. So you, you have those sort of big three, I suppose, um, uh, who have written about risk, and um, a lot of social work uh, academics have, have drawn on that. I suppose the most notable ones would be Stephen Webb and Hazel Kemshaw. 
And there's a, a few key things that tend to come up. So there's the idea that risk has replaced need in uh, modern contemporary practice, if you like. So um, this is drawing from Ulrich Beck's ideas, but the, the idea which is often put forward is that um, risk thinking is, is sort of displaced thinking about need and um, uh, that's generally seen as, as, as not a positive thing. Um, the other sort of part of the argument that's often put forward in the social work uh, literature is uh, ideas around sort of neoliberalism. So some of the Foucauldian ideas are talking about uh, the way people are impelled to choose in uh, contemporary life. So uh, Nicholas Rose is somebody who's written about this a lot in sociology and Stephen Webb picks up on his arguments quite a lot in his book. But what he's um, saying essentially is that um, there's a big emphasis on people choosing the services they want, things like personalization. And uh, although this is presented as a good thing, uh, a lot of social work academics are skeptical of it because it's seen to be an excuse to sort of shrink the welfare net, if you like. And social workers are seen to come in where people are seen as either unwilling or unable to manage their own risks. So there's been quite a lot written about risk in, in social work theory, uh, but I wanted to talk about it in this book because I think that some of these sort of what you would call grand theories in sociology, this, you know, all encompassing ways of doing things don't necessarily pay enough detail to the way in which um, individual workers might manage these tensions in their everyday practice. You mentioned you mentioned neoliberalism, and in the book you talk about how there's been a promotion of individualism, yeah, uh, and that being a consequence of neo neoliberalism's influence on society. So, in terms of social work um, and the Care Act and the principles um, within the Care Act, um, there is a focus on empowerment and choice. But do you tie that into the the discussion around the promotion of individualism as a result of neoliberalism? Um. Yeah, that's a good question. I think I'm a bit sceptical of uh, the the way in which some social work critics, I suppose, see everything about uh, the choice agenda as, as negative. So, um, and I write about this a bit in the book. So I think some authors um, say, well, you have this choice agenda and this sort of essentially takes power away from people through reducing services. Um, I'm not totally convinced by that, really. Uh, I think... Um, if you look at the arguments around personalization, there was uh, a number of social work authors arguing that um, we ought to be increasing choice. And I, you know, I suppose I'm on that side of the argument. Um, and yeah, I'm not sure that it, it does totally, you know, displace uh, services either. So I think, um, yeah, you can say that, you know, current services fall into this sort of trend of what people call neoliberalism, but I'm always a bit uncertain of it because I think the term neoliberalism itself is a bit um, indistinct, you know, so uh, it tends to be used as a catch-all for everything people don't like, and it doesn't have much sort of analytic grip, if you like, you know, when, you, when you're looking at problems. So that's my issue with it, I guess. Yes, no worries. It'd be fair fair to say it's it's broadly associated with free market capitalism, though neoliberalism as a as a as a notion. Wouldn't that be yeah, correct? it is. Yeah, so that's um, uh, 
what it's about. So to, to try and explain the theories of, of neoliberalism, um, it's usually associated with uh, the Reagan government in the US and um, the Thatcher government in, in the UK. So it's the idea which is put forward by governments that free marking thinking should um, be the you know, guiding star, if you like, of policy, and that uh, the role of government should be paired back, and the idea should be that um, you know market forces uh, should should be used to improve policy. So, um, I think you know people are right to be critical of, of that type of thinking, but I'm not sure that um, all you know health and social care policy you know reflects that in a its pure kind of form. You know, there's different. Um, types of policy under different governments and the degree to which they uh, embrace the private sector or not differs, you know. So um, the reason why I sometimes feel a bit frustrated with it as an academic, I think, is because, you know, as a social work student, you always hear this, uh, you know, everything is neoliberal criticism and it's been um, there all the time in which I've been an academic. But uh, the, the... I suppose the issue is that because it isn't specific enough in my mind, you know, what is exactly you're looking at quite often, um, the critique doesn't get very far. So, it, 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 you know, you tend to read very similar things in the literature from, you know, one hour qualified to now. I just want to jump back to uh, the CARE Act again um, and, you know, the CARE Act in terms of promoting individual choice and empowerment, to what extent did the research participants regard the Care Act as marking a shift away from sort of paternalistic uh, attitude um, to providing care uh, towards a move towards a sort of person-centred practice? Was that something that research um, participants give any thought to? Yeah, they did. I mean, uh, people were very positive about the Care Act and, and, and the powers that it gave them. I think it's fair to say that people drew a distinction between the powers given to them in theory and what it actually gave them in practice. So in one of the chapters I do outline the uh, problems of austerity that uh, a lot of workers uh, put forward. Uh, but going back to this this point about empowerment that you 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 asked about, I think uh, in relation specifically to safeguarding, people often quoted uh, the making safeguarding personal policy, um, which had been pushed by the local Government Association and then adopted as part of the Care Act. So people were generally supportive of that idea, which is that you should um, be asking people uh, about risk in their own lives and how they wanted it to be managed. You know, so uh, it, it should be focused on the wishes of the person where they have capacity. Now, there's a couple of points I want to pick you up on in relation to this. So we come back to the austerity issue. Um, you do comment in the book on the ways in which shortages of resources brought about by austerity has impacted risk work in a number of different ways. Just give us one example um, of one of those ways that um, shortage of resources has actually impacted. Okay, so I think there's a few things I could say, really. So I think people uh, mentioned that as austerity um, started to bite, local authorities uh, cut the number of services uh, that they had. Um, this wasn't particular to local authorities, of course. It also happened within uh, health services as well, such as community mental health services. So workers identified that um, the local authority, in particular the safeguarding team, had become what they one participant had referred to as the last stop. So because uh, there was 
much less to go around in in terms of services. Um, you get this situation where you know more things become a, a safeguarding concern. Um, this then has an impact because it causes blockages in the social services system, if you like, because um, ideally that there should be some sort of uh, movement between teams. But if everybody's really stretched and has no staff, it then becomes very difficult to refer on. So uh, you, the, the system starts to get jammed up, if you like, um, uh, as a result of uh, the lack in resources. And Jeremy, yes, just saying on that issue of the the um, shortage of resources available to local authorities, and I can't remember if this was something you're explicit about in your research, uh, in your sorry, in your book, or something that I've read into it myself. But it was the idea that um, shortage of resources has led to a focus where practitioners have shifted from one of promoting well-being to one of minimising harm. Um, I, I don't think people would say that in a straightforward way. So. Um, what I identified in one of my chapters was that um, when people were talking about the principles of, of safeguarding, which I listed earlier on, uh, some of those principles got uh, reinterpreted along the way. So I think people did identify, you know, well-being as being as important, but um, principles like proportionality, um, which I think were intended to ensure that people. Um, only got involved uh, when it was necessary to do so. So, you know, that they, they weren't too interventionist. Uh, people tended to, you know, use that as a means of um, limiting resources, if you like. So, you know, th- th- some of the concepts which had been intended, I suppose, to promote empowering practice got reworked a bit uh, as a means of um, managing uh, finite resources. What's the result of that? Does that mean intervening less often? Yes, I think essentially it does. So it's um, in the chapter where I think about um, how referrals are managed um, in most of the teams which I observed, you had a initial um, referrals team of unqualified workers. You then had a group of um senior practitioners and social workers sort of screening the assessments and then um you had a group of people um doing longer term work uh, which might be the same as the people who had done the screening or different um what tended to happen um was that some people um when they were referring to for longer term safeguarding uh, were aware i suppose that their colleagues were overstretched and so would either sort of try and hang on to the referral or do it themselves or knock it back to the referrer. And so um, this wasn't necessarily something which people's managers were telling them to do and, you know, it was done by diktat. But you had these sort of team cultures developing where people were saying, well, you know, I've been in these types of longer-term teams before. I know they're really stretched. So um, it's therefore my job to sort of knock ones back that don't look like they uh, are you know, fully meet the care act criteria, uh, or to sort of try and hold on to them and um, you know manage them myself. So, yeah, you have this sort of um, working, I think, which is done with the best intentions, but it really is you know trying to um, not back things which are, um, might be on the threshold, if you like. Okay, and um, when we're talking about 
systems, we're talking about thresholds. Something that jumped out to me, I found very interesting in the book. Um, it was you give detailed consideration to IT systems used to manage referrals into adult services. Um, and you cite previous research that using ICT systems can blunt social workers' compassion by considering cases on a screen. You know, there's a risk of mm. dehumanizing the service user. It's not something that had occurred to me before, um, but I find that really, really interesting. When you were speaking, uh, when you were shadowing um, the practitioners, to what extent did you find that to be a problem? Uh, you know, did you witness the dehumanizing impact of, you know, looking at cases on a screen? Um, yeah, that's, um, you know, interesting research, actually. So the, the research you mentioned is uh, research by Dan, Dan Burroughs, who'd done research into hospital social work teams. And um, uh, yeah, he talks about that dehumanizing effect, which is is quite interesting. Um I think, yeah, you did notice it, actually, and uh, I was quite struck by it sometimes when I was sitting by social workers and they were going through things. So um, one of the things I, I mentioned in uh, my first data chapter is that uh, there's a very large amount of referrals that are always sort of waiting for social workers and um, a long you know, queue, which you can see on the screen quite often, uh, that they they have to get through. And as an outsider, you know, these screams always look quite alarming because uh, lots of them would be sort of flashing red or or amber and there'd be maybe a couple of greens on it. Um, I suppose what I noticed was that maybe the social workers weren't alarmed by the sort of colour coding system as I was, probably because they'd sort of got a bit um, used to it or desensitised. Um, but when people were sort of screening assessments, uh, because of the speed at which they were forced to do it, uh, that did seem to have a bit of a dehumanizing effect. So, um, you know, I observed, you know, one of the senior practitioners just, you know, quickly sort of running through things saying, does this meet the criteria or not? Uh, if it doesn't, you know, that gets referred back. Uh, and uh, this one does, so that gets moved on. So I think um, the fact that people have got a large workload to get through and um, they're, always aware that more are sort of joining onto the end of the list. That kind of pressure does uh, dehumanise the process slightly. Thank you, Jeremy. Now we're going to wrap shortly, but I've got one final question, and I think this is very important. Uh, it relates back to an issue you were discussing earlier, and that was about the issue of the principles of safeguarding being interpreted subjectively by social workers, particularly in relation to the principle of proportionality. And in the book, you note the need for an improved understanding of the ethics of safeguarding and the increased alignment of national legislation with international human rights frameworks, including the United Nations Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities. Now, what does that mean? What would an what would an increased alignment look like? What how would our domestic legislation need to change? Yeah, so I've I've started to look at this issue uh, with some colleagues. So I've done an article with Sarah Donnelly, Jim Campbell, and Judy Lang in the British Journal of Social Work recently, where we thought about how uh, social workers might use supported decision making strategies to support human rights of individuals in adult safeguarding inquiries. And we look specifically here at people living with dementia. Um, I think it's useful to sometimes draw on these uh, conventions uh, to try and refine our decision-making because there's a tendency in the social work literature to say uh, we just need to fall back on our values, but that can be quite subjective. And I think it gives us a bit more rigor to think through these frameworks. Um, I mean, the work that I did uh, looked at the issue of supported decision-making and differences between the Mental Capacity Act um, and the way that uh, 
capacity is seen in the UN Convention of Human Rights. But uh, the kinds of things that we were thinking about there was how you might provide clear and accessible information about safeguarding, thinking about the location of safeguarding meetings for people living with dementia, uh, drawing on research evidence, uh, thinking about ways of building relationships and using flexible timescales and tailoring information, and uh, then going back to this issue of will and preferences, which is uh, talked about in the CRPD. So um, I don't think uh, you know I've solved this issue or you know gone into a huge amount of detail. Really, I think it's somewhere where more work could be done. Uh, but I think the CRPD is a useful way to to think about these things because it it just forces you to uh, think through the detail and uh, not let yourself off the hook, if you like. Um, but, you know, other ethical frameworks are also sometimes useful to, to to do these kind of exercises as well. But it's useful to try and apply it to practice situations, I think, because um, as academics, it's quite easy for us to point out the problems but not really come up with any solutions. So every now and then I try and do a practice article to um, force myself to think about how these things might be applied. Jeremy, thank you so much. There's stuff we didn't get to cover. It's a long book. We've only a 45-minute podcast. But I'm really pleased that you were able to spend some time with me and explore uh, the findings of your research. Thanks very much for coming on to Let's Talk Social Work. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was really, really nice to talk.